am going to pray again. So hopefully that's allowed. Father, we do just thank you for, for this time. And I just pray that you would, you would help us today as we look at the glory of, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you would, you would speak to our hearts. God, that we would hear it afresh. Maybe some for the first time. Pray that you would increase faith in our, in our hearts. Um, that you would, you would encourage us. And that we would just be amazed again at the good news that you have for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been reminded already today by Brad and of course this weekend uh, with the terrorist attacks in Paris, France on Friday night, that we live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a fallen world with a lot of bad news. One media source yesterday said that three teams of attackers that ISIS claims responsibility for killed approximately 129 people, left 352 injured, 99 of them critically. And as Brad said, those numbers may have, may have changed. But events like that make us fearful. They sadden us. And they make us angry. Uh, at times they make us speechless. Some of us, you know, we sit glued to our television sets, maybe our smartphones, looking at the news. Other of us want to stay away, turn it off, don't even, don't even look at it. But we sit stunned, we're sickened by it. And the media uh, moves as fast as they can to get news to us. A vice president at CNN was reported as saying that he was going to have 70 people on the ground by Saturday afternoon. We don't lack for news coverage. Live reports, articles from every opinion imaginable saturate us with this story. And news of this magnitude demands response. Often it changes a country's citizen's way of life. It changes foreign policy. It changes in many ways the world as we know it. We can't hear news like this and not be affected, even if it's in a small way, just little us. And unfortunately, it seems that in general, bad news is pretty much the news. Bad news is pretty much the news. This may not only be a media bias toward it, but psychological researchers actually call this a negativity bias, and that we as humans have a greater sensitivity for bad news, which means negative things impact us more than positive things do. So the media pounces, and it becomes exhausting. If we live more than a few decades, we get enough bad news you know, just by being alive, um, just by living our day-to-day -day lives in our own lives, let alone our families, our friends, without any kind of input from the state, from local news, from the world. And so many of us can become anxious. We can become fearful, discouraged because of bad news or just anxious about the bad news that's coming to us or to our world. And so our heart is longing for good news. Proverbs 25.25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. So one of my prayers today is that your thirsty soul, your parched soul, your exhausted soul would be strengthened, would be encouraged with 
God's good news. And so today what I want to do is I want to turn our eyes, I want to turn our hearts away from the bad news and fix our eyes on the most important person with the most important news in human history. All other people, any other event whatsoever is less significant than him and his news. There's nothing more essential. There's nothing more momentous for the entire universe. It's of ultimate relevance for our lives. It's central to absolutely every single thing that we believe. It's the main thing in Christianity. And every single one of those things are probably understated. It is the most important thing, this good news. But before we get to it, in case some of you don't know, we've been going through a string of messages. We've been going through a series, the We Believe series, that's covering a new statement of faith that's intended to replace the old one for our local church body, which the elders have presented before us. All of the sermons in the series are online. I think there's about seven of them. You can go to rcffortuna.org, rcffortuna.org, if you've missed them and want to download them and see where we are at as a church. So check those out. So far, we've covered what we believe about the Scriptures, that the Scriptures are our authority, that we as a church sit under the Scriptures, not over them. It's God's God-breathed book. We've looked at who God is as Trinity, that God is triune, that He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is the Creator, that God created every single thing that we see. He created it out of nothing that He made all of creation good and He made men and women in His own image. Two weeks ago, I spoke on the fall of man and the impact of sin entering the world, the impact of it upon our relationship, upon fallen humanity's relationship with God, upon the identity of human beings apart from Jesus. Last week, Bob talked about the fall of Satan and what we believe about spiritual beings and the difficult Um, Issues that that creates in understanding that and dealing with the reality of Satan. So we've gone in a certain order here, and that's not by accident. Triune God, good creation, the fall of man, and now we move to the gospel. So today, we're going to be spending our time looking not so much at a doctrine, but looking at News. News is the report of something that has happened. It's the report of something that has happened. And today we're going to look at the best news in the world. We're going to go through a bunch of different scriptures. We're going to look at what gospel is and what it means. When you break down the Greek word for gospel, I'm not going to say it, uh, it essentially means joyful news. Joyful news. News that brings joy. Therefore, the gospel news is good news. It assumes bad news, but that's not its core. It announces the remedy to what it assumes. The Bible tells us that the gospel is power, that the gospel is power. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 calls it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So God's good news is attached to God's power. It contains explosive power. The Greek word for power in that verse is dynamis. Therefore, the gospel is stronger. It's stronger than any internal negativity bias that psychological researchers may have uncovered. 
The gospel has supernatural power, that it can overcome any internal power, it can overcome any external power that humans can bring to it, that the gospel brings salvation, that it brings us deliverance from our worst enemies, from humanity's worst enemies the gospel brings deliverance from, that it brings it to anyone no matter what race, no matter what status in life, anyone who would believe this news can be changed and experience salvation. But what is it? What is this news? What is the gospel? We Christians, we like to throw around the term like a political campaign slogan that pretty much everyone can repeat, yet not everyone actually knows what it means. One satirist uh, who mocked politicians came up with a political slogan for his fake presidential run, and this is what he said. His slogan, making a better tomorrow, tomorrow. The gospel is not the church's campaign slogan. It's our very life. It's the main message that God has for the world. Therefore, as a church, we must know what it is and what it means. We need to understand that it's more than the message we use to get sinful people into Christianity. It's greater than a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's bigger than the last five minutes of a message where they make the big pitch, tell you to close your eyes and raise your hands. The gospel is all-encompassing. It encompasses everything in our life and in our ministry and for our world. So it means we can be a news junkie, and some of us are. I think Bob has even said it from the pulpit. He's a news junkie. But we should predominantly be gospel news junkies. That's what we are called to be. That's to shape us and to inform us. If I was to put it in a sentence, and again, this sentence is incomplete, it's imperfect, but I would say the gospel is the royal announcement of Jesus the Christ and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection according to the scriptures for sinners and for all of creation. Big sentence. I think we put it up. Good. The gospel is the royal announcement of Jesus the Christ and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection according to the scriptures for sinners and for all of creation. And there are three A's in there. There are three A's, and that's intentional. I want to unpack them for us. First, the gospel is an announcement. The gospel is an announcement. That is, it's news. So it's not good advice. It's good news. It's not about something you have to do. The gospel is not about something you have to do. It's about something that has already been done. Gospel is not principles to live by. It's not just teachings to follow. It's the reporting of an event It's not in the first place about you. It's not in the first place about us and our experience. When we give people our testimony, that isn't the gospel. That may be what the gospel has affected, but it's not the gospel. If we start the gospel with us, if we start the gospel with you, you've already jacked up the gospel. The gospel is about the person of Jesus and what happened in the historical events of his life. The Gospel of Mark makes this clear when in the first verse he writes, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And so Mark is a news reporter telling the events of Jesus' life and then all moving toward and pointing and culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Later on in chapter 1, Mark calls it God's Gospel. God's Gospel, which reinforces the fact that this news is something God came up with. It's His. It's God's possession. And since it's God's, and since it's in the singular form, it's Gospel, not Gospels. Yes, we have Gospels, but all of the four Gospels are pointing to one Gospel, one message, one one person. And because it's in the singular form, there is only one Gospel. God has one message for the world. It's not ours to tinker with. It's not ours to tweak with. The worst, the worst pronouncements in the New Testament are toward those who would change the Gospel, who would offer another Gospel. In the book of Galatians, Paul calls God's damnation anathema upon those who would preach any other Gospel. It's good news, but it's dead serious news. And the gospel is about royalty. Royal announcement. It's a royal announcement of kingly news. We know this is true because in the days of Jesus, the Romans themselves, the Romans called the announcement of the birth of a new emperor or the fact that a new emperor was going to take the throne, they called that gospel. Additionally, Jesus himself uses this term in relation to a kingdom when he starts his ministry, with the announcement that something new has happened. Something new has taken place in Christ, that his arrival has disrupted earthly kingdoms. The first thing that Mark reports about Jesus in his gospel in chapter 1, this is in verses 14 and 15, this is what Mark says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, when Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, he starts by announcing to the world that God's reign and rule has begun. That's what Jesus announces. All over the gospels we find this. We find that Jesus proclaims the gospel of God's kingdom. That he is reporting its arrival. He is heralding, he is He's heralding to the crowds that something momentous has happened in the world. That the reign of God has come. God's kingdom has begun. And that he's calling them to respond, to repent and believe. And so Jesus teaches and preaches the gospel. And it comes accompanied with power. So Jesus doesn't just teach. He isn't just speaking words. Actual deeds are accomplished. What does he do? He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He forgives sins. He makes himself equal with God. He raises the dead. What kind of authority is this, they say? Many in Israel, especially among the serious religious elite, did not believe this good news, did not believe what this man from Nazareth was saying and bringing. Even for the ones who did believe Jesus, who did follow him, The events that he was reporting, this rule of God that he said has arrived, were kind of coming about in an unexpected way. While they were expecting a Messiah who would overthrow Roman rule, Jesus was overthrowing greater enemies than that. All of these ideas about a king, about the kingdom, 
did not come out of nowhere for the people of Israel. The coming of Yahweh himself and the establishment of his reign was promised in the scriptures, was promised again and again throughout the Old Testament. We saw this earlier in what we read in Isaiah 52 and 61. In Isaiah 52, God said that he himself was going to show up on earth. In verse 8, it says, For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And that this was going to be a moment of celebration. This was going to be a moment of, of massive joy, of, of singing, that God was going to come. God was going to comfort his people. He was going to bear his powerful ruling arm. He was going to destroy the enemies. He was going to bring salvation. And then in Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 61, in verse 1, he announces, God through the prophet announces that one is going to come who is going to, to be anointed by and filled with the Holy Spirit, and that this messenger was going to bring good news to broken-hearted people, that he was going to heal them, that he was going to bring good news to people in prison and free them. So when Jesus shows up reporting the news, he is announcing that everything, that all of this is happening in him. He's proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel and that he himself is the embodiment of God himself to the world, that he was going to bring the rule of God and restore God's world. Luke 4, Luke 4, if you'd look at that, Luke 4 makes this completely clear. That's what Luke 4 says in verse 16. And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus reads the prophet Isaiah to the synagogue, sits down, hands the scroll over, and he begins to teach. And he says, today, this is fulfilled. He's saying that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one. He is the one full of God's spirit, that all of the promises Israel has been waiting for are going to be found in him, are going to be found in what he says, in what he does, and in who he is. He's saying that the reign of God has begun. The reign of God has begun in the person and work of his son. This is why in the first sentence of the statement of faith, when you see the heading gospel, the first sentence says, Jesus Christ is the gospel. The message is the person. Jesus is the message. So we're not just receiving information about Jesus. We are receiving Jesus. This is why Paul could say, I preach Christ. I preach Christ. Even if other people preach Christ, at least they're preaching Christ. King Jesus was alive to Paul 
In 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So the gospel was personal to him. God's gospel, he calls it my gospel. That Jesus was the resurrected, reigning king of kings, and he was in the line of David, linking the testaments between old and new. So the gospel is the central message of Christianity, and at the center of the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is our central message. At the center of the message is Jesus. So the gospel isn't an end in itself. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the middle. Jesus is the end. Michael Reeves put it this way. The center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It is not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Is this gospel message Is this Jesus, the jewel of your life? Is he the one who is of most importance to you? He was to Paul. One of the great summaries of the gospel, this is what what we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. writing. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Goes on. This section of verses gives us the contents of what the gospel is about. But before that, I I want us um, uh, before we hit to the the last of the A's, the last two. I want us to notice a couple things about this passage first. Notice that Paul says that the gospel is the most important thing that he says. Paul says that the gospel is the most important thing that he says. We see that in verse 3. Look at it. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Another translation puts it this way. I passed on to you what was most important. So the gospel is the most important news in in his life. Is it in yours? Is it in yours? And this is amazing because remember who he's talking to. This is the letter to the Corinthians. Corinthians, they, they're a little psycho about spiritual gifts. They have 
some major sexual issues going on in the church. They are probably getting drunk on communion. They're experiencing all kinds of divisions and factions against one another. And he summarizes this as the key message to their whole lives. It's as if Paul is saying, you have a lot of screwed up things here. I spent 14 chapters addressing all of these things, but I want to close and give you the gospel. So, that means the answer to all of our issues, all of our practical day-to-day issues, all of our sin issues is the gospel. The spiritual problems in your life, the spiritual problems in your life always come because you do not believe the gospel. A failure to believe the gospel. A failure to reorient your emotions. To reorient your thoughts. To reorient your way of life around the news of what God has done in Jesus. Also, notice the thoroughness. The all-encompassing nature of this gospel. In verses 1 and 2, Paul shows the past present, and future tense of the gospel. The gospel was something that they received, so they received it at a time in the past. The gospel is something that they stand in, that they presently stand in the gospel. And that the gospel is something that they are being saved, being saved by. So they don't move on from it. They don't go past it. They don't move up to something better. There isn't anything better. Paul gives us the third A here too. He shows us that the gospel is according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Notice the emphasis that he lays on this. He repeats it twice. He repeats it two times in his little summary of the gospel here. He connects it to the death of Jesus in verse 3. In verse 4, he connects it to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is striking because Paul is saying that the authority of the gospel itself is tied to the authority of the scriptures. It's, it's almost like, you've got to say this carefully, but it's, but it's almost like it wasn't enough that Jesus died and rose again, but that he had to do so in fulfillment with all of the scriptures. So he's constrained to repeat that this is biblical. This is biblical. And so that's a mind-blowing testimony to, again, the authority of the Scriptures. The authority of the Scriptures. The eyewitness testimony of the people who experienced the appearance bodily resurrection. This was an important piece. He devotes verses 5 to 8 to it, but it was not enough. Paul says Jesus died. Jesus rose again bodily. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible tells me so. So all of what happened in Jerusalem, everything that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 33, is tied to the story God has been telling in the world through the Jewish Old Testament. We saw this in the ministry of Jesus too. Uh, We saw this in Luke chapter 4. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises. We've seen this as we've gone through these messages that it started in the very beginning. That God's promise started in the very beginning. That Jesus is the promised seed of Eve. And that he would be bruised at the cross, but he would rise again, that he would crush the head of the serpent. 
But he also mentions the appearances of Jesus. Paul does not want those who hear this testimony Excuse me, Paul does. Paul does want those who hear this testimony to be able to verify it with eyewitnesses. So he spends time laboring that point. He wants them to know that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. He's trying to make clear that this wasn't an apparition. This wasn't a ghost. In the ancient world, that wasn't that big of a deal. Seeing ghosts um, or speaking of ghosts or giving authority to them Um, It wasn't a big deal to see a spirit. There was nothing world-changing, earth-shattering for that culture. It was relatively common. What was a big deal is that Jesus was actually referring to the bodily, that Paul was referring to the fact that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. This was the resurrection of a corpse. This was not just a manifestation floating out there. And that if Jesus is alive, that means everything has changed. Everything has changed. So it brings us to the accomplishment of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus is history, but it doesn't give us the meaning of history. Paul does so here in verse 3. He gives us the gospel in four words. Not my long sentence. He gives us the gospel in four words. Christ died for our sins. One writer who confronted 20th century theological liberalism put it this way, Christ died, that's history. Christ died for our sins, that's doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there's no Christianity. You have the event, you have the meaning of the event. And so Jesus did not just die a martyr's death. He died for sinners. And this gives us the bad news the bad news about human beings as sinners and the good news about Jesus as the sinner's substitute. And so God's King comes to the world not to just crush all the rebel subjects, but He comes to save them. He saves us as we are. He saves us as we are, as sinners. He comes for the ungodly, our selfishness, our defensiveness, our self-righteousness, our sexual issues, our violence, our addictions. He died for that. He died for those who cannot save themselves. He died for the poor, for the powerless, as we sung about. This gospel is contrary to the gospel we live and breathe in our culture. While the biblical gospel assumes that men and women are sinners who can't help themselves, the psychological gospel assumes men and women just need to unleash the greatness within, need to realize their potential, need to experience well-being, wholeness. And so we believe a gospel of self-help in America, a therapeutic gospel. But the Christian gospel assumes that you have something that you need to be saved from, that you can't help, your sin. Why? Why do we need to be saved from sin? Jesus tells us in John 8, 34. He describes sin as a slave master. That's the picture that he gives for sin. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That it's, that it's a power. That it rules you. It enslaves you. It reigns over you and in you. That you cannot fix yourself. And that's offensive. That's offensive. That's bad news. It goes against everything that we are 
that we are taught. You can't fix yourself. Ultimately, there's no self-help. It's an impossibility. Sinners have to be set free from bondage and that they don't contain the keys inside of themselves to free themselves from their own bondage, that they need a new ruler. They need a Savior. And that's exactly who Jesus claims to be. Later in John 8, he says, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. He brings good news. So what we need is we need news. We don't need to-dos. When we try to fix ourselves, and, and I know this, when we try to fix ourselves, it blows up in our face. It pretty much does. Notice, too, that Jesus accomplishes salvation for sinners by dying. He accomplishes this by dying. Now, that's a shock to the religious establishment of the day. It's kind of a shock to anybody. You think the king is going to die? What kind of Messiah king dies at the hand of an occupying empire of God's people? What kind of a Messiah is that? What kind of a Savior dies on a tree, naked, beaten in front of everyone? He was supposed to defeat Israel's enemies. He was not supposed to die at their hands, in the hands of the Roman rulers. But Jesus died because the penalty for sin is death. Jesus died because there were greater enemies than Rome. One of them is that sinners were enemies of God. Sinners were enemies of God. God is holy. And sin must be covered by sacrifice. We see that all through the Old Testament. Blood has to be shed. There has to be death for sin. Sin must be cleansed. The wrath of God against sinners must be averted. So what does God do? He sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to be the sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice that you and I cannot give, Jesus becomes for us. Jesus becomes the sinner's substitute. Behind this language that Paul uses of Christ died for sinners, when he says Christ died for sinners, that, that four-word picture of the gospel, behind that word for is all the language of Isaiah 53, the picture of the suffering servant, the picture of the man of sorrows, that there was going to be a man of sorrows who was going to be acquainted with gr- grief that was going to come and carry the iniquities and sins of God's people. And that's what Jesus did by dying. He died for every sinner who would trust him. The fa- that the Father, in his love, put forward his Son as a substitute. He did it to satisfy his holy justice. Justice had to be served. God is holy. Blood must be shed. And he did it to demonstrate his love. He put forward the Son. This is not the Father against the Son. This is the Father putting forward the Son so that all the wrath could go, the Son would rise again, and we would experience sonship. Jesus achieves salvation. So, what that means is that there's no more sin left to pay for. And that if you try to pay for it, it's not going to work. Jesus paid for sin. So we can quit trying to pay for it. Some of you, certain personalities... You always feel like you've got to pay for your sin. It is not going to work. Jesus paid for it. There has to be a death. And Jesus died. So sin tallying is over. 
for those who trust Jesus. God will not count sin against you. He does not count them. It's not on his fingers. It's not a list in his back pocket. The gospel is good news because it's Jesus' accomplishment. Because it's him dying and not you dying for sin. This brings us to another accomplishment. The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. This is the vindication of all that Jesus accomplished. This is the evidence. It proves that it actually happened. It's the evidence that sin has been forgiven, that Satan has been defeated, that death will die. One theologian said, the resurrection, I thought this was cool, the resurrection is the amen of the Father over the it is finished of the Son. The resurrection is the amen of the Father over the it is finished of the Son. Since Jesus is alive, your sins are forgiven. That's your proof. It's not yourself. The proof is Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. Sins are forgiven. It's not in the first place that, you know, you got saved and you're pretty good at dealing with your sin now. You're pretty good at that. Good job. It's not the proof. Sin is dead because Jesus isn't. Because he died, your sin is dead. Because Jesus is alive, you are reigning in life with him. The event of Jesus' resurrection also coronates him as the Lord of the world. This is also good news. This is why John, the Apostle John, can call Jesus. And this is the guy who, who saw the risen Christ in full glory in Revelation, which is an interesting book. Um, but um, Revelation 1.5, John says this, the firstborn of the dead, referring to Jesus, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is king and Caesar is not king. Jesus is king the leaders of the Islamic State are not king, period. If death is all an oppressive ruler or an oppressive regime can bring, can scare their subjects with, Jesus beat it first. And so will everyone who trusts him. All they can do is take life. So the gospel, in a sense, is actually also a political statement, not the kind we may think it is. But it's the political statement that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. All of our discouragements, all of our frustrations, wherever you're at on the political spectrum, all of your hopes about the new election, the great hopes that may come, depending on which party of yours gets elected, um, all of those have to bow before King Jesus. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's where our allegiance is. Our allegiance is to His kingdom. Our allegiance is to King Jesus. So put this political season in perspective. This also means that since Jesus is Lord, BJ isn't. You're not Lord. You must relinquish control. You can't ultimately control your kids. You can't ultimately control your spouse. You can't ultimately control your job. You can't ultimately control your health. 
You can act wisely, but it's still going to be imperfect. The fact that Jesus is alive means we can relax. We can live under Jesus' gracious rule, that he is the ruler, that we're not. We need to trust him. So the gospel is good news of great joy because Jesus has conquered all of our enemies. Sin is forgiven, Satan is defeated, and death will die. And this news changes the world, not only for sinners, but for all of creation. And so the gospel is not just individualistic. It's not just you and Jesus. It is you and Jesus. But it's also God making a new humanity of people. And a new humanity of people to rule in his new creation. And it's also not just for people. The gospel is good news for the whole world. For all of creation. And so this news, not terrorism or not any other kind of news, is the news that determines history. This is the news that determines where history will go. The gospel is bigger than us. It's about Jesus restoring the world. That Jesus is going to come. He's going to make everything right again. It's about Jesus banishing sickness. Jesus ultimately killing cancer. Destroying death forever. It's about the fact that the trees of the fields are going to clap their hands. That lions will lay down with Lambs. It's about all of creation becoming new. Everything, the whole universe, will be restored to its original intent. And even beyond its original intent, even further than what it was in Eden, because the risen Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, the scars are going to be there, but the Lamb who was slain and the Lion is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a picture that they did not know before. God will be with us. Jesus will be with us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will see something that Adam and Eve never experienced. We will get to experience and praise the glory of His grace on us forever. So God gives Himself to you in the Gospel. God came in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And one day his abiding presence will be the undeniable experience of all creation. And we see news like this weekend, and what do we say? We say, Come. Jesus, come. Maybe some of you are dealing with news, and that's what your heart is saying. Come. Come, Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus will come. That's good news. That's to shape us. And so this demands our response. This demands our response. First thing out of Jesus' mouth when he said, the gospel of the kingdom was here, repent and believe the gospel. The response isn't the gospel, but it demands our response. Will you believe this news as truer than any other? Will you believe that today? Will you let this news shape your life, maybe for the first time? Or we're being called to reorient ourselves again and again around this news. So, one way we celebrate the news, we celebrate this news, is at the Lord's table. Jesus 
come in the flesh. Christ come for sinners. Jesus alive. So come on up, guys.
1 Corinthians 11:23 to 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we give thanks for this great news that you've given us. Oh God, would you help us draw us to you Help us to reorient our lives around this great news. Your Son is alive. 